Luke chapter 4. The, uh, the notes are in the bulletin. There we go. Luke chapter 4. And I'd like to begin our time this morning by reading our text for today. The first 14 verses of Luke chapter 4. So let's begin our reading. <clears throat> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom or I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went all about throughout the surrounding country. Oscar Wilde famously once quipped, I can endure anything but temptation. Now, this is an amazing passage. Amazing because in it we see the sinless Son of God, who thus far in this gospel has been testified to by an angel, Gabriel, testified to by Elizabeth as she greets Mary, testified to by Simeon in the temple and Anna, testified to by the very voice of the living God himself, as Jesus is baptized, testified to by the Spirit descending upon him as though it were a dove, testified to by Luke through his genealogy, linking Jesus with real humanity. And now we will see him receive the testimony of surviving, of triumphing over temptation. If last week we saw the, the testimony of heaven, here we see the testimony of hell. As Satan throws everything he has, as it were to speak, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he reigns triumphant. The temptation and triumph of the Son of God. The temptation and triumph of the Son of God. Now the text breaks into, into a couple neat sections, but the first thing I want you to notice and why I include verse 14 is once again, we have another inclusio. This is a literary style that Luke has used repeatedly. And what an inclusio is, is, is when a section of a narrative begins and ends with the same theme, with the same type of phrase. And it lets the reader know you're dealing with a chunk. You're dealing with a unit. And so how does this section begin? It begins, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. 
And how does it end? At the end of this temptation, in verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So we got, we got a chunk. We know we've grabbed a unit of the text, and we see it because the, the reference at the beginning and at the end to the Spirit's power and work that also serves to give us some insight into what major themes we should be looking for here. As we read the story of the temptation of Jesus, we should expect to see or to learn how the power and leading of the Spirit is evidenced through what Jesus does. That's that's what we're looking for. That's the unit. So let's dive in. The Spirit's guidance and power. The Spirit's guidance and power. Now, you'll remember last week we saw the baton get passed from John the Baptist to Jesus. No, no, two weeks ago. I'm sorry, last week was the genealogy. Pardon me. Two weeks ago, the last time we saw action in the text, we saw events, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. The Father testified to him. The Spirit descended as though a dove upon him. And now, here is Jesus with that Spirit that fell upon him, the Holy Spirit, and he is full of the Spirit. And he returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This is the very next event following the baptism. In fact, if you look at the other Gospels, you see immediately following the baptism, this is what happens. The Spirit guides and directs Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. I don't know about you, but when I, when I first start thinking through that, that can be, that can be challenging. This is the one who the last thing we heard was the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then God sends him, leads him by his spirit into the wilderness, not just into the wilderness, but into the wilderness for a period of fasting over 40 days and continuous temptation from the devil. I understand from studying Luke that it's not just that there were three temptations. If you look down at verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation and, and the construction of verse 2, for 40 days being tempted, you get the, the understanding that throughout the entire 40 days, temptation is taking place. Now Luke highlights three of them, but, but I, I fully understand and expect this to be a full, gameted, exhaustive, comprehensive temptation that Satan is really throwing everything he can at him. And only in verse 13, after the devil had ended every temptation, does he depart. So this beloved son in whom God is well pleased, this one who's led by the Spirit, is led into a period of 40 days of hardship and suffering. I mean, I I grumble if I miss a meal. 40 days. 40 days of of no food, no shelter, no human company. The Father sends this one in whom he is well pleased out. Another another issue can get brought up as well, and, and I think it's helpful or critical for us to study before we dive in, and that is, what does it mean for Jesus to be tempted? What, what does that mean? I've talked to different people, I've read different things, and, and people can struggle with this and have some surprising, surprising um, thoughts on this. I, I think it's pretty straightforward. Jesus, Luke has shown to be fully human. We've seen Jesus learn and grow in wisdom. And so here Jesus is tempted, as men can be tempted. But the problem is, and is that in James chapter 1, 3 through 15. James makes a very clear statement about temptation as it relates to God. Listen to this. James 1, 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, 
He himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is given, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so the problem arises, how, how can Jesus, who is God, be tempted? Um, so your first blank there, what does it mean that Jesus be tempted? What does it mean that Jesus is tempted? God cannot be tempted by evil. Now, that, the Scripture testifies to that. But what, G, what James is saying is this, that, that there's nothing in God that resonates to evil. You, you and I have the experience, at least I know I do, that welling up from within me, from my own heart, without any coaxing, without any help from the devil or the world, are periodic desires for things that are frankly wicked, things that I have no business wanting, things that I have no business craving. And what James is saying here is that when I'm tempted... I don't need to look any further than my own wicked heart, my own sinful desires. So, so God, God can't be rightly blamed. Now, we know from other passages in the Bible that God does indeed send trials and temptation. I mean, just read the book of Job. Job gets it right. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understood both the blessings and the suffering came from the hand of God, even though we, the reader, know it's Satan involved as well. Or think of, think of when Jesus tells Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like flour and wheat. Now, if I were Peter, I'd say, you said no, right? <laughs> but no, God permitted it. So, so there is absolutely a sense, and we see even in this text, the Spirit sending Jesus out into the wilderness, there's absolutely a sense in which God can plan, God can prepare, God can bring about trials and temptations. So when James says God, God himself tempts no one, but each one of us is Lord and enticed by our desires, I think the distinction he's making is the most immediate cause of my temptations and your temptations, I need look no further, you need look no further than your own hearts. But the scriptures also say other things about Jesus. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and and keep your finger here, because we'll return here a little bit later on in our time this morning. And and the reason why I think it's important to emphasize that, yes, Jesus is God, and yes, as we think through it, I'm sure there are ways in which his temptation differs from ours, but, but the scripture wants us to see the similarity. The scripture wants to highlight the, the solidarity we have with him. Actually, go, go, to, go to Hebrews chapter 2, actually, first, and we'll turn to 4. 2.18. 2.18. Well, let's start in 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus had to become like you and me, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now get that. The scripture links Jesus' common sharing of suffering and temptation as the basis of how and why he is able to help us when we are being tempted. Get that. It's precisely because he has suffered and been tempted, according to Hebrews 2.18, that Jesus can help us. Turn a, turn a page to Hebrews 4. Verse 14 and 15. 
Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So the logic of this passage is this, and, and this, is, this is important for me. I, I get a lot of hope and a lot of encouragement out of this. When I've failed, when I've fallen flat on my face, when I have sinned, when I have held wickedness to my, to my chest, and I know that what I need to do is to get up and return and, and turn to God and, and ask His forgiveness. I can be tempted at times, sort of like that dog with his tail between his legs, to think that the, the greeting I will find from my Savior will be one of disgust. What, again? <sighs> How many times? And what this passage tells me is that my high priest who, who intercedes between the living God and myself, my advocate, my Savior, is not unable to sympathize with my weakness. Which, to put positively, take the double negative, he is able to sympathize with my weakness. Why? Because in every respect, he's been tempted as me, yet without sin. So to me, the reality, the very reality of Jesus' temptation is, is, is critical to hold on to for very practical purposes. The less and less we turn Jesus' temptation into anything like our temptation, the, less, the more unlike my temptation it becomes, the harder it is for me to believe this. The harder it is for me to believe this. C.S. Lewis, I was, I was reading a, a book by Wesley Hill, and he helpfully quoted C.S. Lewis on this point. We can be tempted to think, and this is, this is important. I want to stop here. This is important because if we don't believe Jesus' temptation is anything like ours, then what we're reading here at best is theater, and at worst is just unimpressive and boring. We can be tempted to think, well, how could Jesus sympathize? He never sinned. I mean, he, he doesn't really know what it's like to be in the grips of, of desire and temptation. C.S. Lewis writes this. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. Think about that. I mean, how, how many times does Satan need to get Jesus to give in in order for him to succeed and for Jesus' mission to fail? Once, right? Once. We are supposed to marvel at this passage in Luke, not be bored. We're supposed to marvel at the faithfulness of our Savior. We're supposed to marvel at it. Point two, Jesus was really tempted in every way like us. And that, that is important for us to understand. 
It's also a helpful observation to note, and, and we won't go into all of trying to parse this out, and people have spent many, many pages, that everything, at least in this passage, that Satan holds up to Jesus as a carrot is not fundamentally wicked in itself. That might help to resolve some of, of these things, but, but we'll get to them one by one. But there's another problem, too, here. That is, why on earth would God do this? Why on earth would God send his son to be tempted, and not just to be tempted, but to be tempted by the devil, and not just to be tempted by the devil, but to be tempted by the devil as he grows more and more weak and hungry over 40 days? Why on earth would he do that? And this, this, I think, challenges a lot of our thinking and a lot of our prosperity gospel light thinking. You know, the prosperity gospel says God always wants you to be healthy and, and rich. And I, I think most of us recognize that's, that ain't right. You just need to read a little church history of what happened to the apostles and you recognize that that doesn't work out. But we can buy into the sort of American prosperity gospel light. And, and you, you've heard me mention this. The light version goes something like this. If you're faithful, if you go to church, if you read your Bible, if you have integrity, you will have a relatively easy life. Relatively. I mean, yeah, there'll be some waves and stuff. But, but God will shield you from the massive trials, from the cancer, from the, from the unemployment, from the death of family members. And so when those things come our way, we can tend to get confused and, and sort of act like, God, I've been a good boy, I've been a good girl. Why is this happening? I want you to understand this. The Father loves us. The Father loves the Son. We just heard, last, last time before the genealogy, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Apparently the Father can determine that his beloved son in whom he is well pleased suffer and be tested this way. Let us make no mistake that he's somehow, we have better rights than that. You know, Vody Bauckham makes this quote, and it's, it's fantastic. It says that we, we say, oh, but God wants me to be happy. Yes, in him, God wants us to be happy, and God wouldn't want anything hard in my life. And he says, let me get this straight. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God, it pleased the Father to crush him on our behalf, but you, he wouldn't want unhappy. But we can be tempted to think that. And here we see that immediately following, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, God sends him on a hard, hard road. And Peter gives us the same, same instruction. He says, in this you rejoice, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it, is test, though, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So Peter's explaining to his readers why it might be that God has brought painful and difficult trials into their lives. God is testing and proving their faith. God's testing and proving our faith. And that is what's going on here. Why? Why does the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? I've got at least four reasons. One, we've got to move quickly. To prove him to be the obedient and faithful Son of God. God has already declared him to be the beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. But you'll notice in, in two of the temptations, that's the precise angle that Satan comes at. If you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, then the temptation follows. 
The father, in other words, doesn't simply expect us to take his word for it. He sends his son into the wilderness that we may have a physical and practical demonstration to prove to Satan, to prove to the world who this one is. God doesn't expect us to only take his word for it. He demonstrates we will see him be the beloved son in whom he is well pleased. Number two, to succeed where Adam and Israel failed. Talked. We talked two weeks ago about how Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. How he comes into this world like Adam, sinless. And here we see, like Adam, he is directly and personally tempted by the devil. And just as Adam's one act of sin led to the condemnation of the many, so Jesus' faithfulness and Jesus' obedience will lead to the, the forgiveness and the, the making righteous of many. And so it is fitting for this second Adam, this second one who is the redeemer of humanity, to also be tempted by the devil. Yet the other parallel here is this. Israel enters into its sonship with God through the exodus from Egypt. Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son. And Israel goes to Sinai, and God speaks, and the earth shakes. And for 40 years in the wilderness they are tested and tempted. Jesus has just heard the Father speak. The Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. It's not for nothing that in every instance Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy. It's his response to Satan. This is the faithful Israelite. This is the one who will succeed where Israel corporately failed. What this means ultimately is Jesus is living our life. Jesus is providing our righteousness. He is succeeding precisely where you and I fail. He succeeds. Point number three, why? Why send Jesus, the beloved son, into the wilderness to be tempted? To provide a pattern for us to follow. To provide a pattern for us to follow. What I mean is this, Jesus and the way he perseveres through temptation and the way that he survives and triumphs in temptation gives us the pattern of how we likewise can th- survive and triumph in temptation. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 21-23. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And one of the things we're to do as we walk through the temptations, observe and learn, how does he, how does he succeed? How does he triumph? How does he fight? And finally, point B, we've already, we've already seen this. If you kept your finger in Hebrews 4, to enable him to sympathize with and help us. To enable him to sympathize with and help us. Get this. Jesus endured this long, grueling ordeal, this suffering, this personal, repeated attack of the devil, in part, so he could love and serve you better. So he could be a high priest you wouldn't be afraid to come to, that you wouldn't feel like the dog who hides in the corner, but that you would say, my Savior understands, my Savior can sympathize, and so, yes, I screwed up, yes, I disobeyed God, but there is one who stands before the throne of God, the Father's right hand, 
who will receive me, who understands, who he can give me help. And Jesus endured this so that you and I could believe that and be encouraged by that. And at this, we, we, we should just worship and marvel. So now let's look at point two, the devil's unrelenting attack. The devil's unrelenting attack. Now we get three temptations. As I've said, there are likely many, many more. And in each temptation, I want to look at three things. There's the promise or the carrot or the thing that is desired. And then there's the lie that undergirds the promise. And then Jesus speaks truth to that lie. And that's really the pattern that we've got to follow when we're tempted. There's always something that's held up that we want, and it's not always a bad thing. There are times that you and I want things that are in and of themselves wrong. There are other times we want things that are good. But now it's not the time. Taking a nap, rest is good. The temptation to do that while you're on the clock is bad. Amen? And so it's not always that our temptation is craving wicked things, but we can want good things at the wrong time in the wrong way. And we've got to spot the lie that undergirds it, and we've got to speak truth to it. So let's, let's dive in, verses 3 and 4, the temptation of bread. The temptation of bread. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, and it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, I think this is probably the most obvious of the temptations. Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. And the Spirit has led him to do this. This is being led. The Spirit, notice, doesn't just lead him into the wilderness, but according to verse 1, the Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. We're to understand the Spirit's leading of Jesus is continuous. It's not as though the Spirit just said, okay, go into the wilderness. But Jesus is being led by the Spirit, even as Jesus is being tempted by the devil. But then, just lest there's any confusion, the end of verse 2, he was hungry. The God who does not grow weary or tired is hungry. Very hungry. I've, I've done some things, I've done some juice fasts, and I, and I know how tiring, I know how um, weak you can become when you don't eat much. I have no idea what 40 days is like. 40 days of no food, no calorie intake. He's hungry. And Satan comes to him. And what, what exactly is the temptation? What's, what's the promise here? It's not a bad thing. The promise is this. Your suffering can end immediately. Your suffering can end immediately. Since you're the son, if you're the son of God, why not end your suffering immediately? You're in the wilderness. You're hungry. It's been 40 days. Is, is there anything fundamentally wrong with wanting to eat? Does anyone here not think Jesus was really hungry, really wanted to eat? This is something he desired. Then what's the problem? What's the lie that undergirds this? Well, the lie is subtle. The lie is that God is not to be trusted. He will not give you what you need. Remember, the Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness. It is God's plan for Jesus to fast. It is God's plan for Jesus to, to go these 40 days. The temptation is to question whether God's plan is the best plan. The temptation is to question whether God's forgotten you. The temptation is, can I trust God? What if the 40 days turns into 80 days? The temptation is for you and for me to use our own strength and to look out for number one. Can I trust God where he leads me? 
Or will I, by my own strength and by my own might, fix things? And that's crucial. And Jesus' quotation of Deuteronomy 8 makes it clear that he understood this. It's not that Jesus eating food would have been bad. It's Jesus eating food when the Spirit is specifically leading him to fast in the wilderness would be bad, would be wrong. Listen, listen to the, a fuller quotation of, of Deuteronomy 8. I'm going to read verse 2 and 3 of Deuteronomy 8. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor does your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What Moses is telling Israel, what Jesus is quoting and applying to himself and understanding is that in the wandering in the wilderness, God was intentionally humbling Israel. He was trying to teach them something. He was trying to, to get them to learn something. They needed to depend on God and his word. They needed to depend on his provision. He put them in a situation where if God did not miraculously give them food, they would starve. And if God did not miraculously give them water, they would starve to test what was in their hearts and to teach them they could trust on God. Nay, we must trust on God. That's what God is doing to Jesus in the wilderness, leading him out there. Jesus understands that. So what's the, the response to the lie? Maybe I can't trust God. Maybe you can't trust God. Maybe God's forgotten about you. I must learn to depend upon the word of the Lord. That, it's, that might be, if you feel God's led you somewhere in the wilderness, that might be the lesson God's teaching you to learn to depend upon him. I know that it's only when all of the, the props underneath me get knocked out only when I'm forced to, only when I have no other recourse, those are the times when I fully cast myself upon God and his provision, right? It's not through the times of, of fatness and plenty, but through the lean times we learn to trust God. So Jesus understands he, he is here in part to learn by experience to trust upon the Lord. The scriptures can speak of this way. He learned obedience through the things he suffered, and so Jesus says, no, I, I, not only can I trust my Father, I must trust my Father in his word. I'm here to learn to trust my Father in his word. And he resists the temptation of bread. Secondly, the temptation of the world. The temptation of the world. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been given to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me... It will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now understand this. This is once again a very real carrot, a very real prize. Jesus comes to earth and goes to the cross in part that he might inherit the nations. Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will give you. And you your inheritance, the nations. Jesus wants to rule the nations. When he returns, he comes to claim the nations of the world. Make no mistake, what, what Satan is offering Jesus is something Jesus truly desires. The, car the carrot is real. And the promise is this. 
You can have this thing you want, Jesus, without going to the cross. You can have the crown without the cross. Again, I think this is the temptation we can relate to. You can have a crown without a cross. Now, underlying that promise is that God is not to be worshipped because He leads you into needless suffering. Now, here we've got a situation where the, the Father intends the Son to have all the nations. A little later in Luke, chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus says this very thing, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. The Father's plan for handing over all things to Jesus involved the cross. Crucifixion involved things like going out to wilderness for 40 days. Satan has a different plan to offer him the same reward. doesn't involve suffering. doesn't involve torture. just involves a little worship. The challenge is this. Why worship a God who would cause you to suffer? Why worship a God who might bring trials into your life? Why worship a God who by His Spirit sends you into the desert, Jesus? Worship me. I'll give it to you freely. That's the challenge. And again, I think this is something that resonates with us. Why worship a God who causes us suffering? And make no mistake, you read through the Bible, God absolutely does. Doesn't do it willingly, doesn't do it sadistically, but we read in 1 Peter, He causes our faith to be tested and refined. God is behind the suffering of Job. And that's the challenge, right? That's the challenge. Why worship a God who would cause you to suffer? Satan can give him this very thing Jesus wants freely. No suffering, just worship. Just, just change your allegiance, Jesus. That, that's what's at stake here. And Jesus responds, understanding that clearly. The Lord alone is worthy of worship and service. And that's something that the Scripture repeatedly affirms, and we have to remind ourselves that God knows what He's doing. Now, we know, reading the entire book, what God's plan is here, how the temptation of Jesus fits into God's plan to glorify Jesus, and how ultimately Jesus' greatest suffering, that of the cross, is what will bring Him the greatest exaltation, right? Therefore God has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And that's precisely because he humbled himself to the point of death. So we can see that God's plan is wise and good. It's not that God is a sadist. He's not intentionally and needlessly causing suffering, but God knows that the ultimate greatest good and the greatest glory and the greatest joy may come through the valley of the shadow of death. And and so even when we don't understand, why would God allow the cancer? Why would God allow the job to be lost? Why would God allow this struggle? He never stops being good, and He never stops being worthy, and He never stops being wise. And we've got to hold on to that by faith, or we will start to worship other things. And Jesus says, no, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him alone shall you serve. There is no other value. There is nothing else worthy of your allegiance. But make no mistake, it is precisely when following God costs you something that this trial and temptation will become real. I've talked to people who struggle with, if God loved me, why would he let life be so hard? 
And I just want to encourage you, if that's where you are, you have a high priest who wrestled with that. You have a high priest who triumphed over and through that. Take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. Jesus overcomes the temptation of the world. By the way, I think Satan's probably overstating his case a little bit. Yes, he's the God of this world, but as Jesus said, even a few chapters later, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus roots his resistance in an unswerving faith and confidence in the worthiness of the Father, no matter what circumstances we're bringing. Number C, the temptation of God's protection. The temptation of God's protection. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, He said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now Satan here shifts up his strategy a little bit. Up to this point, the challenge has been, can you really trust God? Can you really trust him with your own welfare? Are you really confident that he's really looking out for your best interests? Mightn't it be wiser to reach out your own hand by your own strength and get yourself some food? even though God's led you here to be tempted. Might, might it not be better for you in the long run to shift your allegiance to some other God, to some other Savior who won't require suffering, who can give you or promise to give you the same things? Up to this point, the challenge has been, do you really, really trust God? Is he really worth following? Here he flips it around. Well, if you're going to trust God, why not trust him fully? I mean, and then he starts quoting scripture. I mean, Satan's picked up on the fact that every time Jesus responds by quoting scripture. So here Satan quotes the scripture. He quotes Psalm 91. And he says, takes him up the pinnacle of the temple, the center of the public life in Israel. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot upon a stone. He's quotes Psalm 91. I find it very interesting that he stops this quotation there, by the way. The very next verse in Psalm 91. And you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Didn't, didn't quote that bit. But, but he got the other bit. And it's a promise of God's protection for the one who loves him, for the one who's faithful to him. And the the argument is this. God has just declared that he loves you. God has just declared that that you're his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. So therefore, the promise of Psalm 91, Jesus, must apply to you. So jump off the temple and let everyone see how God cares for you. Let everyone see how God catches you and protects you. you. You say you trust God, fully trust him. That's, that's the temptation. He flips it around. What's, what's the carrot? What, why would this be a tempting offer to Jesus? Promise. You should be immediately and publicly vindicated by God. You should be immediately and publicly vindicated by God. What, what would this involve doing? If Jesus were to jump off the top of the temple, the center of Israel, the center of Jerusalem's public and religious life, and be caught by angels. It would be a notable public sign and miracle. It would be an even greater attestation of the Father's support of him. It would vindicate him for who he was. There wouldn't be arguments over, are you the son of man? Are you the son of God? Are you David's son? That, That debate would be over. 
There's a temptation in you and I to, to question and trust God. And, and is he really, does he really love us? And will he really be there for us? In fact, if you, if you track the quotation of Jesus' response... It helps unpack even further what the lie is. The lie, God is not present and he will not protect you. The quotation of Deuteronomy 6.16, that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as at Massah. And in Exodus 17, we read about what happened at Massah, how specifically Israel put the Lord their God to the test. Let me just read this to you. All the congregation of Israel, Exodus 17, moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. Now listen to this. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You get it? These people had seen the Red Sea part. These people had seen the mountain shake and quake. These people had seen the Nile turn to blood. These people had seen the, the, the provision for those who put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and how their children were spared. And then things get rough, and they get thirsty. And they get, let's face it, close enough that they're actually fearing death. I mean, they're right up to the edge. And even though they'd seen all that, what's their question? Is, is God really love me? Does God really care for me? And that was the question. Is God really among us or not? And they put the Lord to the test. It's being thirsty wasn't wrong. It was the quarreling. It was the grumbling about it. Okay, so let's try to put this in comparable terms. Jesus has just heard with his own ears the Father testify of his love and pleasure in him. That was 40 days ago. 40 days can be a long time. In those 40 days, life has not been easy. It's actually been kind of hard. No food, no shelter, the hot sun beating down on you every day, and the devil relentlessly attacking and tempting. Maybe, maybe it would be nice to see another fresh demonstration of God's love for him. Maybe Jesus himself would like to have had a, a, a further testament to God's love and care for him. And maybe Jesus would like others to see that. A lie, you should be immediately and publicly vindicated by God. Undergirding that promise is the lie that God is not present and he won't protect you. Maybe you need to check again that God still loves you. Maybe you need to check again that God will still take care of you. Why not force his hand? Yeah. Why not force his hand? The psalm says God will protect, God will guard, but 
You put God to the test when you force his hand. And maybe the equivalent might be something like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give all my money to the poor and just trust on God to pay my mortgage. And then everyone will see, because I'll tell them what, how the Lord cares for me and how the Lord takes care of me. And you'd be putting God to the test. Putting God to the test. He will care for us. He will take care of us. He wouldn't let Israel die of thirst. The truth, true faith does not test the Lord. It trusts him. True faith does not test the Lord. It trusts him. Let's quickly look at the son's comprehensive victory. The son's comprehensive victory. I just want to look at three points briefly. One, temptation and trials can be intensive and grueling, but they are not unending. Temptation and trials are intensive and grueling, and in Jesus' case, comprehensive, but they are not unending. The Father had a plan. It was 40 days, 40 days of trial, not 50, not 60, 40. 1 Corinthians 10.13 promises this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So yes, make no mistake, God will and does bring trials and temptation and difficulty and suffering into our lives, but he meters it out with grace, and he meters it out with a loving hand, and it it will not be unending. Or James, chapter 4, 7 to 8. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That in your trials and in your suffering and in your temptation, it will not be unending. Second, if we're to learn from this pattern, then how did Jesus survive these tests? Three things. Jesus relied upon prayer, the Spirit, and the Word. Prayer, the Spirit, and the Word. Now, prayer isn't mentioned in this passage, but where it is mentioned is the immediately preceding one in Luke chapter 3. When he was baptized, when the Spirit came upon him, it said Jesus was praying. And then we get the genealogy, and then the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. So Jesus is a man of prayer. The entire text is capped by the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice again, how does Jesus resist temptation? He keeps quoting the scripture. All that studying Jesus did in chapter 2, where he was in the temple, sitting at the feet of the teachers, is paying off here. In some senses, how is Jesus enabled to succeed in temptation? It's in part because of the work and the effort he put in as a young man. Don't miss that. Luke wants us to see the means. We're tempted to think Jesus is walking around like Superman. He may look like Clark Kent, but underneath the shirt is the big S. The bullets bounce off. That's not what Luke's showing us. Luke shows us. Jesus doesn't say, I'm God, leave me alone. He, he quotes the Bible. If our sinless Savior needs to know the Scriptures and have it in his head, and he doesn't say, hold on, there's a verse somewhere. Let me look it up. Hold on. He just, out of his mouth, comes the Scriptures. And if Jesus needs to rely on the word, and if Jesus needs to rely on the spirit, and if Jesus needs to rely on prayer, let's not kid ourselves that we're going to succeed without that. Jesus does not respond. Luke does not just show us Jesus saying, oh, I'm God, get out of my face. Jesus is 
in the power of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, quoting Scripture. He's sinless. And he's the perfect son of God, but he's sinless precisely because he uses the means that God gives him. Otherwise, the sweating like drops of blood that comes about 20 chapters later in Luke is a big piece of theater. It is a battle. And it's a battle he wins. And he wins through prayer, and he wins through reliance on the Spirit, and he wins through treasuring God's word in his heart so that in a moment it can come out of his mouth. All that then leads to point C, the final conclusion. Jesus is fully qualified as our Savior and as our High Priest. Jesus is fully qualified as our Savior and High Priest. How is that so? We have not just heard the declaration that He is pleasing to the Father. We have not just heard the declaration that He is sinless. We have seen His success over the powers of hell. Here is a sinless substitute. Here is a spotless lamb. Here is a Savior who can bear your and my sin. And here is a priest who can sympathize Here is a priest who can empathize. Here is one to whom I can draw near boldly. And so I just pray that you would marvel at the grace of God, that you would marvel at the triumph as our Savior, and that you, if you do not know Him, might trust in Him as your Savior, as your priest, as your God and King. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for sending Your Son, and we thank You that he endured this sorrow and this suffering on our behalf. We thank you that our high priest can sympathize. We thank you that he knows what it's like to be tempted in every respect, yet without sin. So Lord, give us the grace and the hearts and the desire to draw near to your throne. Lord God, help us trust this great God and Savior and priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.